Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, my name is Heather Gandino, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm sober by the grace of God amazing sponsorship and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous since April 8th, 1990. I want to thank Mike for representing my state of Tennessee in a lovely orange ensemble. He informed me that he is a corn husker through and through, but he thought he would show me some Tennessee ball love. Thank you. I want to thank Bill and, uh, the committee for asking me to come out and speak. Um, and my hostess, Mo, and I, oh my God, she is a wild child. She has worn me out. We got in the car and we were like, and we haven't stopped. So, um, and happy birthday to our 25, uh, Hawaii girl. You go girl. Um, I'm sorry. I, 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 I speak and I should know not to come up with gum. My husband likes to remind me that one would have to go to a truck stop to meet a woman of your quality. Um, <laughs> come on. So, um, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, right at the foot of the Smoky Mountains. Um, I hated everything about my life as a child. I was the most nervous, uptight kid you have ever met. I wrung my hands constantly. I worried what you thought about me. I worried about not worrying. I I was so edgy, and I was a latent bedwetter, which was just so much fun. Um, I remember sleeping at a friend's house and trying to tell her it wasn't pee. It was just heavy sweating. Um, (laughs) So, um, already feeling different immediately. My mother was, um, a single parent in, back in the 1970s in East Tennessee, it was like scandalous. It was like they put a scarlet D on her door. I mean, there were, they referred to her in the neighborhood as the divorcee and, uh, feeling more different already. And so, um. Um, my house was the house on the corner that people would come by and put the note on the door that said, please mow your lawn. You know, that was the house. My house was the house where we had no alimony and no child support. And so sometimes I would come in and go to flick the switch on and the lights wouldn't come on. But my mom loved us and she gave us everything that she could. And I cannot blame my mother for my alcoholism, I believe I was born this way. My mother did the best she could. As a parent now, I realize, my God, the things that she had to give up and do without so that we could have, I am so eternally grateful for her as a single mom. So as a kid, I told you I'm anxious, I'm jacked up all the time. Um, I'm very intense. Like I would ride my bicycle in the front yard and think if I crashed and died here, wouldn't everybody be sad? I was a morose child. And, um, 
When my mom was late, I was sure she had died in a car accident. I, there's nothing, there's no joy, okay? You know, I peaked at like the second grade, and then it was downhill, you know? And so um, I started to develop ulcers as a child. And um, my mom is an RN, and she took me to a doctor, and he gave me um, a tranquilizer. There's some drugs in my story, but I'm a I, in the singleness of purpose, I talk about alcoholism and alcohol, and the ANDA is the ANDA. I'm an alcoholic. Come on. And so um, she gave me these pills to try to calm me down. And I remember taking that pill and thinking, I want to feel this way for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? I just, you know, when you're five, six, seven years old and you need to take the edge off, you're, you're in trouble. And... Um, <laughs> And my first recollection of drinking was very vivid. Um, my mom had had a party, and there were all those little plastic cups all around the living room, and everybody smoked back then. So I was picking up the ashtrays and pouring one into the other, and I was picking up the drinks and pouring one into the other. And I remember the very first drink I ever had. It was uh, vodka tonic, and all the ice had melted, and there was that lime floating around that looks rather odd. It always looked dirty, right? And... Um, I took it, and I took a, a couple of big swigs, and I felt that warm whoosh, and it shot down into my gut, and for the first time, I felt my shoulders go down. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, you know, this is it, you know, and I went through and, and, and you know, and I, 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 and even as I talk about it now, I'm having like a Pavlovian response, and my mouth is starting to salivate, and... And if you're new here, I want to welcome you and tell you that normal people don't talk about alcohol in those terms. They don't talk about the beads of sweat glistening down the beer bottle. You know, they don't talk about, you know, um, they don't have to say things like, oh, I'm so sorry I slept with your husband. They don't, none of that. And by the way, there's not a Hallmark card for that. There's nothing, nowhere. They, they don't talk about booze the way that we do. I believe with everything that I am that alcohol in the beginning saved my life. And that is to say that I felt like everybody knew how to do life, and I didn't. And so the minute I took that drink, I, I finally felt like I was a part of what you look like. I don't know if that makes sense. I felt like you looked finally. And so alcohol worked for me until it didn't. And so, um, so I'm in East Tennessee. Um, my mom's a divorcee. Um, I'm nervous, uptight, late in bed, wetter. And I get into, um, high school. I actually at around six, fifth, sixth grade, my mom got called into the principal's office because, um, I was doing horrible in school and they couldn't figure out why I was a nice enough kid. I was not acting out, but, um, they put me in remedial groups because I was a, a slow learner. I don't know if I have any short yellow school bus riders here, but I'm your girl. Um, the principal wanted to speak with her, and he said to her, uh, I, well, I'd like to speak with the girl's father, too, and, and my father has never been in my life to speak of. And I remember her saying, you sorry, SOB, I'm her father and her mother, and if you have anything to say, you can say it to me. And I remember sinking down in the seat in the principal's office and thinking, I wish I had one of those vodka uh, <laughs> vodka tonics, you know, that bitterness and that. I, I wanted that drink. That was my first reaction. 
that is who I am out the gate. And that, you know, peaking in the second grade and turning to alcohol at six and seven, there it is. So I, I, I go through in remedial slow learning groups, being made fun of and being told that I'm stupid. And um, by the time I was in high school, my freshman year, I had become a punk rocker. Now, this is not current times. In East Tennessee, there were no punk rockers. <laughs> Let me paint the picture for you. My best friend Leslie had a big 10-inch mohawk that was jet black. I had three colors in my hair. And we rode around in a white Dodge Dart that we had painted pink polka dots on. And it had pictures of Elvis Presley in the back windows and pink fuzzy dice. And every time the car turned left, it would go, honk. I love that car. I felt like this is it. I have arrived. But God's cruel twist of fate put me in a classroom with homecoming queens, not just one, several. And I don't know if you know anything about the South, but pageants are big in the South. And so I went to school with girls that had very pageanty hair. As we say in the South, the bigger the hair, the closer to Jesus. And uh, <laughs> they were loving the Lord. They were loving the Lord. And... Um, they had pageant names like Belinda June September and Sally Sue Sadler. And they would always say things like, me, great, and thank you. And so, so there I sat between two pageant queens in homeroom. And I wanted to die. I wanted to die because I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And alcoholics, I believe, this alcoholic, I should only speak for myself, so I tell my girls, keep your eyes on your own paper. Um, for me, um, my best thought was, I've got to get out of here. It's this town, it's these people, you know, um, and I didn't have a, pro a profound southern accent. You know, I speak southern fluently, I can interpret, but... Um, <laughs> You just add a lot of syllables. My husband, uh, we just moved from California back to Tennessee where I grew up, and um, I'm like a walking interpreter. He's like, what did he just say? And I'll, I'll translate for him. I said, it's milk. It has four syllables. me yolk. Um, <laughs> but I didn't speak with a southern accent, so they used to call me a Yankee. So yet again, I felt different. So I thought, I have got to get out of this moth-eaten town. So I had... I had already started doing gigs um, as a jazz singer. I was singing with a jazz trio. I was not old enough to be in the clubs, but my mother would go to the gigs with me, and I would sing for a few hours, and then I would do some gigs on the side at different openings and events. And, um, and so I was drinking and acting like an adult when I was a freshman, sophomore, and junior and senior. And this was back in the 80s. I'm a child of the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> Come, see, the, you are my people. Bad hair, bad hair. Anyway, so um, I would do these gigs, and I decided the thing that I needed to do was to get out of Knoxville. And so I um, started studying with this guy, and this guy that was a vocal teacher, he says, you need to go to New York City. He says, that's where you got to go. You know, you got to go to New York City. And so um, I'm like this serial thinker. Uh, like, 
alcoholics, like we do, 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 and we clamp down on it, and that's the answer, and that's what we're going to do, and, you know, we just beat it to death. That's our answer for everything. That's the thing that's going to change me, fix me, so I get laser focused. I thought, okay, I've got to, I'm in high school. I've got to get my driver's license. This is a true story. My mom, I failed my driving test the first time because I was so nervous. I started having panic attack, and I couldn't even fill it out, so my mom judge or not, she took me to Ruby Tuesdays and got me a couple of glasses of Chardonnay. And I took the test and passed it. And uh, it's so funny because my son just got his driver's license. I've got to put this picture on Facebook. He just got his driver's license. And when he went, they went to snap the picture. He looked at me and the woman standing there saying, okay, you need to stand here. And he says, look, and I didn't even have to have two glasses of Chardonnay. (laughs) That's his driving picture. (laughs) Um, so um, I decide to to leave New York uh, to go to New York City to study there because this guy has told me that so I pack everything I own into one suitcase it's the big plan right this is going to be the thing that fixes me is New York City thank God I'm getting out of this moth-eaten town These, I hate it and I moved to Atlanta, Georgia <laughs> and so I made it far enough to get to Atlanta. That's as, as much money as I had. So I'm in Atlanta. I don't really know anybody. And there's something I need to share with you that's kind of embarrassing. So just, you know, don't judge. Um, I knew how I could make money. I, I, I'm, I used to be a professional mimist. And... Uh, <laughs> I know mimes are annoying, but a drunken stoned mime is so irritating. I, I, I would be at the mall trying to walk the wall, and I'd be so drunk I couldn't stand. And um, I'd be in the food court trying to do the whole thing, and I'd just be looking at all the food because I'd be so high. Um, <laughs> But I'm in Atlanta, and again, the serial thinker, doo, 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 doo. New York's going to fix me. New York's going to be the thing that changes me. New York is the answer, right? Okay? And uh, I'm leaving work one night to go to my apartment, and I don't know if I had a taillight out or if my registration was lapsed or what, but I don't know if you know anything about Atlanta's finest on I-75, but they're notorious. So the trooper pulls me over. I'm in full mime makeup. I'm drunk as a skunk and stoned. And he walks up, you know, with the big Mountie kind of hat on, and he motions for me to roll down my window, and he looked at me, and I went. (laughs) He goes, good Lord, go home. So I actually mimed my way out of a ticket, you know. It's crazy. I've heard of women sleeping with cops, but I mimed. So, uh, so I work in Atlanta and I, and I save, you know, just the focus, the focus, the focus. I, 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 we can hunker down when people say alcoholics are weak willed. I say, nay, nay, we are so hardcore. We are like pit bulls. When we decide we're going to do something, if we want to, you know, it's crazy. We are not weak people. So I, I scrape together enough money and I, and I, and I, I get to New York City. Oh, my gosh, you guys. So I'm, like, from East Tennessee. And I come into New York City, and there's, like, what appears to be 40,000 people walking toward me. 
You know, there, you know, I came from a town that they rolled up the sidewalks at nine, nine o'clock at night. And so I see all these people. I'm on the platform with my one suitcase and I'm like, hi, how are you? Hello. Good. Hello. Good evening. Hi. How are you? And I'll never forget it. This guy came up and he was like such a dim season, those guys. He goes, not for nothing, but pull the straw out of your head and shut your mouth. And I thought, oh, okay. So I learned to act like a New Yorker. Um, I never made eye contact with anybody. And if there was a body in the street, I just stepped over it. So, so um, I end up in the village, in the West Village right above the West 4th Street subway in the Waverly Diner. I'm renting a couch in 1983 for $800 a month. And so I need to get a job. And so, uh, yeah, clearly. Um, so I get hired uh, to go work at this restaurant called Prima Donna's. It's no longer, so I can say the name. And back in the 80s, and I suspect, I don't live in New York now, but back in the 80s, they used to have these chic restaurants. They would open up for two or three years. They would be like the hot place where everybody went, celebrities and politicians. And then the owner would close the restaurant down after it kind of faded a little, and he'd move across the street, same chefs, same waitstaff, open up a new restaurant, new name. Got it, right? So I come in, and I get a job at this restaurant that's very shishi poo poo And I'm making... Tons of money, like money I had never seen before because it was super high end. And there were off-duty uh, NYPD that worked private security for all the celebrities. And it was kind of like crazy. And it was the 80s. And you'd see Andy Warhol in there. And you'd see, you know, all these famous people. And so um, this is how I would start my shift. I would show up to work late. But I'm such a great waitress, it's okay. And... Um, I would go behind the bar and I would borrow, see the keyword is borrow, I would borrow a bottle of Louis Roterer Cristal, which is a $250 bottle of champagne. And then I would go with my coworkers into the ladies' room and we would all take a pull off of the bottle and we would smoke a coolie, which is a half tobacco, half cocaine cigarette. So I've told you now, I've shown up to work late. I've stolen from the restaurant. I'm drunk and high. And that's the kind of employee I bring to the table. And um, this restaurant had a, a lectern like this, and there would be a calligraphist handwriting the checks. Very fancy schmancy, right? And one night I was standing here, and uh, another two girls were standing at the lectern with me. We were talking to the woman that was doing the calligraphy. And um, this restaurant was very, very formal, Um You'd walk through the restaurant with your tray up high, you know, floor-length aprons. It was very kind of almost balletic. You would just flow through the restaurant, very elegant, right? And one of the girls that was walking through the restaurant was a little schnockered, okay? And she lost her balance. And if you've ever waited tables and you're holding a tray up and you lose your balance, the tray starts shaking like this. It flips out. The pasta goes flying everywhere. She slides across the marble floor, and her face lands smack dab into Jack Nicholson's lap. And everybody, everybody went, oh. And it was like, the, it was like everything froze, and Jack being Jack looked up and said, Jesus Christ, the service in this place is great. <laughs> pasta hanging everywhere, you know. 
and we're dying laughing. That girl and the two girls that were standing here, I saw in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in Los Angeles years later. I don't know if they're still sober. I'd like to think that they are. Um, so that's my shift at work. Now, in New York City, nobody, but nobody goes out at 9 o'clock at night. You just don't. What you do is you start getting ready to go out, and then you go out at midnight. So I would leave the restaurant. I had a very large handbag for some reason because I would always find things falling in it, like leg of lamb, bottles of wine. Um, And when I got sober and I did my first inventory, and my sponsor said, you know what, I didn't hear on your inventory. And I said, what? She said, I didn't hear you say anything about stealing. I go, oh, because I didn't steal. She said, you never put your hand in the till, but you stole from restaurants. You stole company time. You stole. I, I was absolutely, you know, I may be a drunken whore, but I am not a thief. I was offended. I was mortified. So back to it. I leave the restaurant passing all the security that's NYPD, off-duty NYPD, and they just think I'm this nice girl from the South, and I'm ripping them off. And I would go home, and I would open a bottle of Chardonnay, and it was the 80s, so I had to start teasing my hair early. And the drunker I got, the bigger my hair got. And back in the 80s, I used to use this stuff called Stiff Stuff Hairspray. I don't know if they make it. Um, but this stuff was amazing because I would spray my hair and not one would move. And then in New York City, they had these ginormous cockroaches like this big. I could spray them and they would freeze. And I don't know if it's because I'm a mom now and I just like a multi-purpose product, but that appealed to me. I don't know. You could freeze a cockroach with this stuff. So, so I'm teasing hair and drinking Chardonnay and then that the evening would start. We would go, the limelight had already been in its heyday, or the Studio 54. Um, it was still open, but there was nobody there. We went to the limelight, uh, King Tut's Wawa Hut, the Milk Bar, and we would go to these clubs until they closed down. And then what we would do is we would go to these after-hour clubs that were uh, underground. And you had to know somebody to get into these places. I think it's kind of like what a rave is for younger people today. Yeah. Oh my God. I feel so old. I just said that, didn't I? (laughs) Back in the day. Um, but it was underground and you had to know somebody to get in there. So we would go underground and I'd say, so-and-so sent me and they would open this door and you would go in. It was a makeshift bar, a makeshift dance floor. There were no windows. And I saw things that would curl your toes. I thought, oh my God, I can't believe people are doing all these things in public. And, you know, I'm this small town girl. I had, I had, my eyes were wide open. But what I did know is nobody was looking at the way I was drinking and counting the number of drinks I was drinking. And I loved it. And then I experienced for the very first time in a most profound way what we talk about when we say pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. Let me give you the picture. I was wearing one night a white dress with epaulets and very large shoulder pads. It was the 80s. And um, I come up from that after-hours club, and it's got to be 5, 6, 7 in the morning. It's daylight. And up into the street. And I'm completely intoxicated. And a man and a woman are standing by the edge of the road. And I can see his shirt. It's crisp, pressed. And he's clean-shaven. And 
her hair and makeup are done, and they look at me with such disgust and disdain, and they're so mortified by the way I look. I, I, I remember thinking, oh, my God, they've seen me, and I've been found out. And I did what any alcoholic would do. I went home and had another drink. Because now I'm not in charge of my drinking. My drinking is taking charge of me. Remember that thing that I said before, how alcohol saved my life? It wasn't saving me anymore. It had become a career. Does that make sense? Like It was like it had become my job to drink. There was some joy in the beginning, but it always ended badly. And so remember that vocal coach that that guy said I should go study with? I found a guy. He taught five contemporary singers, and the rest were opera singers. I was one of the five contemporary. But I've told you, I can't stop drinking. I'm going out to clubs every night and then after hours clubs. And I paid a lot of money to study with this guy. And um, so I, 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 I show up to a class to study with him, to have a lesson. And what comes out is, <sighs> and he's like, I'll never forget. He took my face like this, very paternal, and pulled me toward him and very close to me said, you know you're going to come here and take a voice lesson with me. You know it costs you money, and it is my time. Why would you waste my time? Why would you waste your money? And I did what we do. I never went back. Because drinking now has become my job. And, and I don't have any goal anymore. The drink has taken me. And so um, right around that time, I met him, and... He was a nice enough guy, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> um, he was not an alcoholic. Um, and um, he liked me, and he was a good guy. And he was an actor, and he had gotten a film, and so he had to move to Los Angeles. And so I felt like there were just too many demons in New York City, Right. I felt like if I just got out of New York City, now if you're new, I don't know if you see a pattern here, Knoxville, Atlanta, New York, and yet everything's still happening. And so he goes to L.A. to do this film, and I pack everything up, and I go out there to be with him. He didn't ask me to, but I know he wanted me there. And <laughs> I swear to God, if I could have a picture of the look on that guy's face when he opened his door and he goes, <gasps> It's you. And I go, it's me. <laughs> um, so that was a short-lived relationship, needless to say. And I ended up in Playa del Rey, which is right by the ocean near Marina del Rey. And I ended up going from high-end, very fancy restaurants to working at a bar on the corner of Lincoln and Manchester that was a piano bar and a bar that opened up at 6 a.m. and nobody was looking at anybody when they drank. And they had a piano player there named Bill, and he had an acute case of emphysema, and he always had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth with his oxygen tank on. I loved it. He'd growl when he played the piano and sing into the mic. And I would sing occasionally, and people would throw me a 50 because I'd belt out some big song or something, and and my life was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I could not even see it. 
it's as though that analogy of the frog and cold water being boiled alive because you turn it up slowly. I was boiling in my juices of alcoholism and I couldn't even feel it. And um, I, I, I got an apartment in walking distance. And there were five bars down in the main area of Playa del Rey, the Sampan, the La Marina, the Harbor Room, uh, the Prince of Wales, all these different like uh, dive bars, one right after the other. And I drank my way after work through every bar every night. And I would come to. I didn't wake up. And I would pass out. I didn't go to sleep. Now, right around that time, my coworker at the bar Something was happening with her. She was my drug dealer. She was my friend, but something changed. One night, I, I, one day, rather, I went to meet a friend of mine at the Sidewalk Cafe down in Venice. And it's this place where people go and they sit on the beach and they watch the sunset. All the windows are, it's like open to the, to the beach. I'd been on the beach all day. I drank something. I'm sure I smoked something. I come into the bar. My friend's finishing his shift. And there's three gentlemen sitting next to me at the bar. And they were kind enough to buy me a drink. And, um, but I'm already half in the bag, so I don't realize that the bartender didn't bring the drink, but that they gave me the drink. And what happened was, in no short order, they drugged me and they abducted me. And they took me to a hotel room. And as I sat, sat on the edge of that bed in that hotel room talking to them, I'm smart. I got a quick mouth. I can come up with things. I've got, I'm thinking I've got to figure this out. But I remember thinking, my God, you're a nice girl from Tennessee. How did you end up in this shooting gallery motel with these three transient construction workers and you don't even know their names and you don't even know how you got here? That was my thought. I just, my God. So I said to the guys, look, I know you drugged me. I'm just going to call my roommate and tell him that we're going to hang out and party. And so I pick up the phone. I call my roommate, Carl, and I said, Carl, I'm in a hotel room with three men. I think I'm going to be raped and possibly murdered. If you never see me again, I wanted you to know that that's what happened to me. And I hung the phone up. Well, I got sober and I did my inventory. I told my drinking only hurt me. And my sponsor said, I beg to differ with you. Because my friend Carl did say that that was the worst night of his life, waiting to see if I would show up or not. And I don't know if you've ever had one of those dreams where you feel like you can't move your feet. You're moving in slow motion. But everything kind of, I recollect that it felt like that. That's how I remember it. And as clearly as I'm speaking to you, a voice said, get up and run. And I got up and I ran. And three men started chasing me, and I'm stumbling. My motor skills are off. And I look back, and I see two men standing back, and one guy pulls up in the van. He says, get in the van. I'll take you home. I didn't know they drugged you. And so God did for me what I could not do for myself. And in and of itself, I'm in the van, and he's taking me home. And he was true to his word. He left me at my house, and nothing happened. Now, I'm standing at a podium of Alcoholics Anonymous, and this is a mixed meeting. But I want to tell you this, that horrible, terrible things happened to me when I drank and used I could not predict, but I was willing to pick the check up for that because I could not stop anymore. And right around that time, that coworker drug dealer started acting weird. She called me and said, what's going on? I told her, I said, I can't work for a few days. It's bad. I told her the story. She said, I want you to know that I'm going to AA because I'm an alcoholic. And my first thought was, thank God, because you're a pig. Um, (laughs) But what I wanted to do was go and support her being sober. And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous on a Sunday night with her to be supportive. And there was a gauntlet of greeters on either side. 
and so much teeth. Oh, my God. You know, when you're new and everybody, it's like a Fellini film. It's so overwhelming. Do you know what I mean? And, um, And I came in and I sat down and this woman told her story. And I I felt flushed, you know, when you know you've been found out and you get a little embarrassed. I know nobody could see what was going on. She was an an ex-hooker that became a lawyer, which is not a stretch, but um, she... (laughs) I'm so sorry. I have an AA sister that used to be a stripper and she's a lawyer, so that's not that different either. So, but she told my story and I, I... I felt like, oh my God, first of all, I'm from the South. You don't, you don't put your business in the street, right? You're, when I'm a kid, I, my mom, don't you talk about anything, right? And I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't even believe this woman is saying this stuff in public. But she found me out. You know what I mean? And so I, I came in and I got sober and my, <laughs> my cocaine dealer brought me to AA. So, um, So I got sober and, um, I did absolutely everything you told me to do. I got a sponsor. I worked the steps. I had commitments at seven meetings. I was the coffee queen. I had two pots going. I, you know, doing it all. But here's the deal. I told everybody a little bit about me, but not one person knew everything about me. If you're new, it sounds okay. When I was new, here's what I told myself. I don't want to burden her. They're so busy, I don't want to bother them. And I kept secrets, and, and, I, and I didn't let them know. And it's pride. I thought I was being uh, humble, but it was masking itself as being humble. It was pride. My ego was so big, I could not let it all out. And so I called my then sponsor, Marsha, from a gig, because now I'm doing nightclub gigs again, and I'm, you know, my whole band knows I'm sober. And I call her from a gig at a resort in Ojai, and I, I say, guess what? She's like, what? I go, I'm not an alcoholic anymore. And she goes, good for you. And I said, don't you want to ask me uh, to stay? She goes, honey, if you don't want to be here, we don't want you here. You got to want it. And I said, okay. And I went out, and inside of nine months, I lost everything that I had and was as willing as the dying could be when I came back. And I came back to AA. I got a sponsor. I started working the steps again, and I told everybody everything. I vomited my emotions. And you'd glaze over, I'd find another warm body. You know, it didn't matter. I I have told everybody. You know, they would see me come, and it would be like, you know, in the movie Moses. It was like the parting of the Red Sea. They would just part, and I would walk through because I would just, I could not shut up. And um, all my friends were getting married. Now, I have to tell you, I did not work a rigorous program in the beginning. I knew many, many men in the biblical sense. And my sponsor told me, before you date one more guy, before you change your hair color one more time, you will work your steps completely. And I started working on myself and doing what you told me to do. And all my friends were getting married and having kids. And, and uh, my friend used to say, honey, there's a lid for every pot. And I said, yeah, but what if I'm a casserole dish? I don't know if there's somebody for me. I met this guy, you guys, that is like the nicest guy I have ever met. He's not one of us. His apartment had framed pictures of William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. And... Uh, <laughs> 
I said, oh my God, you're a Trekkie. He goes, no, I'm a Trekster. I said, what's the difference? He said, I don't live in my parents' basement and I've kissed a girl before. I said, oh, okay. And like, you guys, he's never seen cocaine. He doesn't do any of that. Like he drinks half a beer and leaves it. Do you know what I'm talking about? And I'm like, drink the beer, you idiot. And he's like, no, I don't like it. It makes me feel funny. I'm like, that's the point, you moron. Drink it. And he's like, stop drinking vicariously through me. He says, it just makes me feel all funny and out of control. (laughs) And like, he is so nice, you guys. The only thing that we have in common is we can both count on one hand the number of women we've been with. I'll never forget, my sponsor was having her birthday party, and I brought him to meet you. And all the old-timers were like, oh, my gosh, she's a piece of work. Watch out for her. I'm like, no, stop. He likes me. Don't talk to him, you know? (laughs) We were driving home from that, and I don't know what happened. I just lost him. I started bawling in the car, and he pulled the car over. He goes, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I said, I can't marry you. I'm like, you're the nicest guy I've ever met. I said, you're so good. There's, if you knew who I really was, you wouldn't have me. And he said, don't be silly, Heather. It's the woman that you are that I do want you. And I realized I'd been doing step work and sponsorship and all that crap that we do in AA, and I forgot to give myself a little break. You know, forgive myself for the stuff that I did. I can't stop crying. It sucks. I'm 50, you guys, and... I cry at everything now, like at a McDonald's commercial. And when I was new, when I was new, there was this girl. She would she would say, hi, she talks like this. My name is so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. And she would go to talk, and she wouldn't, nothing would come out. She'd start crying, but no sound. <laughs> like an ugly cry. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, my God, suck it up. Everything I have ever judged in my life has come back to bite me in the butt. Come on. Am I right? Is it true? Like, I'm a ball. I'm just like, ooh, and I cried everything. So so anyway, this guy asked me to marry him. And he was a, just, I couldn't even believe it. And um, on the day that I went to be fitted with my bridesmaids, I heard that still voice from the hotel room that said, um, get out and run. It said, all this is for you. So um, he married me, and he proceeded to give me two of the most exquisite kids. They are smart. Like, I, after the third grade, I couldn't even do their math. So uh, <laughs> it's so bad. They're so good. Um, and um, we're parents. Mo and I were talking about this. AA has raised me. It's raised my family. And these kids are amazing. When they were little, I remember I was opening up one of their backpacks. And when kids are little, they draw pictures and um, and they um, and they say, "Oh, you know," they, t- they tell the teacher, "You know, um, this is me." And then the teacher writes down all the stuff. So I'm clearing out one of their folders and I'm looking in it. And my husband's Italian. We're loud in the house. There's a lot of love and laughter and roughhousing. It's all boys. I'm the only woman in the house. Even the fish, Joe and Steve, are male. So 
<laughs> he comes home and um, he makes this announcement that he's going to beat the children and they run screaming, right? Okay. So I'm looking at this artwork and it says, this is my daddy beating me. And I went, <gasps> and then I flipped the page and it said, this is my daddy beating my brother. And I'm like, oh my God. And then I go to the next page and it said, this is my mommy. She's an alcoholic. <laughs> So I run to the school. It's like 7 in the morning. They're having staff meetings in a nice little private Christian school. You know, they're all praying. And I'm like, <laughs> I want to talk to you about that whole, I, I'm, I don't drink anymore. She goes, I know. Your son told me you're sober. And so they knew that if there was a parent there that had problems, that uh, I could, I could uh, help them out. So anyway, so I need to tell you that the first four years of my sobriety, I did something that's unusual. But it, it's, it's just my story. It's my truth. I uh, bartended my first four years of sobriety because I could only wait tables or bartend. I had a sober bartender for a sponsor, and she had a sober liquor distributor for a sponsor. <laughs> so um, everybody goes, how could you bartend? I never once thought about taking a drink. And here's, here's what an evening there went like. I'm working at the Hotel Intercontinental in downtown Los Angeles, very fancy. You know, we had these packages they would sell for dinner and dessert and the theater, and you would come back for the dessert after the theater. And he would come in in his Armani suit, you know, beautifully dressed, and she would have her evening gown. They look so beautiful, and there's a jazz trio playing in the corner, and it's just all that glowy, fuzzy ambiance, and I'm looking, and I think that's so sweet. And then you fast forward to the end of the evening and his ties askew and her buns kind of tilted and the mascara is running and she's poking her finger in his chest going, you don't sacrifice shit. And, uh, <laughs> and so I got to see what we talk about, about what it was like, what happened, what it's like. Now, I had 12-step calls constantly paid on me. But after, after four years, I'm like, I cannot say up or on the rocks one more time. So I started working in production and television and film. Now, I have learning disabilities. I think I've told you that. I, I was your short yellow school bus rider. I was remedial. But I knew I had a good mind. And so you guys told me, just suit up, show up, and shut up, and do your job. And I remember being so petrified all the time that I would be found out. I, I'd call my sponsor, and I'd say, I, I think I'm going to get fired. And she would say, why? And I said, because they're in the other room, and I think they're talking about me. <laughs> she says, what do you hear? I said, mumble, 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 mumble. She says, Heather, that's called a business meeting. Now go back to your desk and do the job that you're being paid for. She says, stop wasting my time. And I just remembered the speaker used to say that he could never watch a football game because every time the football team got into a huddle, he was sure they were talking about him. That's me. My husband calls me Heather the grassy Noel Ganziano. You know, I have a conspiracy theory about everything. Um, So my sister got sober two years before me. She was a heroin addict. She was, an, uh, she was a, a white-collar addict. She was working for the IZOD Corporation and going into the bathroom and shooting up between her toes, and she ended up homeless and eating out of trash cans in Washington Square Park. And she got sober two years before me. And then she got cancer of the breast 
And um, I got mad at God because I thought, hey, we have been in it. It is not fair, God, for you to give her cancer. She should have died a junkie, and she's still here. There's something going on. That's not right. I was mad at God. And so um, she got better, and I forgave God. And then she got lung cancer, separate from the breast cancer, five years later. And I let us scream so loud that when I stopped screaming, the silence in my car was deafening. And I, I, I didn't know what to do. I was mad at God. But you guys said, you know what you're going to do? You're going to suit up and show up and be of service to your sister. So we all took shifts flying. She was living in New York with her husband, and they had just adopted, adopted a baby from Russia. She had a little restaurant. We all took two-week shifts, and we would all go and take care of her during her chemo and radiation. And and you guys said, just love on her and be of service to her. And that's what I did. And um, she was not expected to live. And um, I would go to leave, and she would grab my hand and said, please don't leave. And I said, I'll be back in a few weeks. And my brother would come, and my mom would come, and we would all take these shifts, and her husband's family would also come. And um, she almost died of uh, huge amounts of fluid off her lung, and she made it. And um, the doctors didn't know why, but I knew why. And here's why. She's a junkie. You cannot kill them. She is. <laughs> I call her the cockroach. I say she has three legs and one broken antenna. And um... But she did something just recently that broke my heart. And I haven't talked about it with anybody. She came to visit with the family for dinner. And we were all uh, having a family reunion. And she was sitting right next to me, and she said, um, I'm still clean, but I'm not sober anymore. I drink red wine now. And I said, oh, really? Please pass the salt. Because I, I, I knew that if I opened up my mouth or promoted anything, that's not what we do. And she knows where she, was, she should be. And when she left, I went into my bedroom, and I bawled my eyes out. You know, it is not, we don't, mess with that stuff. And some doctor told her she should have a few glasses of red wine to help her blood. So, um, my father-in-law, um, passed away three weeks ago. He was one of us dry as a bone three and a half weeks ago. He, I've been taking care of him. I hated him so much. He was a bad father to my husband. He was abusive to one of my children, and we had to separate him from our kids. And when he was dying, I told myself that um, I'm going to be nice to this guy. I don't know if this is going to make sense because I've just kind of figured it out. I'm going to be nice to this guy for my husband so that when he dies, my husband won't feel guilt because he can't give him the love and nurturing that he needs. And so I had hated him for almost 20 years of our marriage. I had resented him, and I did everything that you taught me to do. I gave him the best care, and I made every arrangement. It's not my nature. I don't care about you. I don't want to worry about you, and especially if I don't like you. I don't, that's who I am. My sponsor said, I want you to be of service to him. Um, my husband's working on a project in L.A., my father-in-law was very ill and then was diagnosed with lung cancer. And they said, hospice said, you've got some time. Go visit your husband in L.A. When I went to leave the room, he was lucid and breathing fine. He grabbed my hand and he said, now, he's a total misogynist. Married and divorced nine times. Feel me? Yeah. Um, 
he grabbed my hand and he says, I cannot thank you enough for everything that you've done for me. And so as fate would have it and God was good, I was with my husband when his dad died and we all had time together as a family. And I thought I was taking care of him to help my husband. And I don't know if this is going to make sense because it's just kind of, I've just kind of figured it out lately. I took care of him to help my husband, but in taking care of him, I forgave him. I loved him more than he loved me. I forgave him more than he forgave me. And I understood him far more than he ever understood me. And I cannot thank you enough for giving me the tools in Alcoholics Anonymous to know that kind of stuff. I don't come equipped like that. I'm like, we're like a bunch of broken toys. I'm telling you, we are a hot mess. Um, I don't like to talk long because I don't think what I have to say is that interesting. Um, and I have been at meetings where speakers have run on rather long. And it's funny to watch because everybody looks like they're in a dental chair. You know, their butt cheeks are crawling out. There's always some guy going, you know. But I'll tell you this one story and I'll shut up. I, the kind of work I do, I'm at my desk a long time and I'm dealing with really insecure, neurotic people. Lucky me. And um, everybody thinks you want their job and everybody's worried that you're going to be better than them and smarter than them. And they think they're smarter than everybody. It's just a wonderful job. So anyway, my sponsor gave me a direction. She says, period, I work out of the house because I do a lot of phone work. I want you to get up and walk out and go in the yard and do something in your yard to relax. And I said, okay. So I, I would make a point every two or three hours, I'd get up and go do something. So I decided I'm going to be very zen and spiritual and start working on my lawn. And this is in California and, you know, gardening and, you know, and everything. And every morning I come out, there's orange peels all over my lawn. And I am so, I'm getting crazy about it. You know, it's, you know, who, that's the problem with society. Nobody cares about anybody's property. These, this is the conversation. It's stay with me because I look like an absolute idiot in the end. Um, and so I go out and I pick them up and I throw them in the street. And I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm obsessed with finding these kids because I know they're walking to school. They're eating oranges and they're just throwing them in my yard. And I'm angrier and angrier. And now... It's like eating my lunch. I'm like getting ready in the morning. I'm putting on makeup. And that's the problem with parents. They don't want to be parents to their kids. They're trying to be friends. And then I'm going to tell their parents how they're abysmal failures. That's what I'm going to do. I'm looking through the blinds. I'm going to find them, right? So embarrassing. Um, I'm, I'm on the lawn watering the yard. And an orange peel falls out of the tree and hits me on the head. <laughs> And I look up, and there's two birds eating the oranges that they've stolen out of another tree. It's so embarrassing. Now, if you're, if you're new and you're going, I, I, what does that have to do with alcoholism? I'll tell you exactly what it has to do with alcoholism. On any given day, at any given time, my behavior is based on the spiritual maintenance of my program. My perception of people, places, and things is directly affected by how I stay in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous. You have taught me that I'm either going toward a drink or away from a drink. And so if I'm pushing into the center of the herd, I'm not going to get picked off. And I'm not going to be stalking unreal people throwing orange peels on my lawn. So anyway, 
What I'd like to say is thank you so much for giving me the life that I have today. And if you're new, I want to tell you, welcome home. I know you're tired, but this is the best deal going for fun and for free. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.